Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On this edition of the No Restraint Podcast, I'm going to be talking about something that may be uncomfortable for some of the people to listen to. It's uncomfortable for me to think about or me to talk about because I do have a lot of personal experience with the subject. One of the things that I've become really concerned about, and I think many people in America have, is this increase in the number of children who are diagnosed with autism. And now we have all these elaborate spectrums that we talk about, and basically we've tried to turn autism into something desirable. And we say that there's a spectrum and that some people are super successful who have been diagnosed with something on the spectrum. I I think of Elon Musk immediately, right? And, And I think of myself. And certainly lots of other people come to mind. It's a hot subject again because of this whole vaccine controversy that erupted with the COVID vaccines and them being forced on all Americans. And actually, they were forcing it on people all over the world. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is one of the Democratic candidates, I mean, he'd have to win a primary against the seated president, Joe Biden, which is highly unlikely. But he's still figuring in all of the conversations and all of the debates. And he is a person who is known for being very, very concerned about the rise in autism and the potential of childhood vaccines being responsible for it. Now, I've revealed before that I know him or knew him. Don't know him now, but I did when I was younger. And he's been talking about vaccines from the time he was like 15 years old. And his concern about whether or not we're gonna see long-term effects on the population So, of course, you don't have to be a political analyst. You don't have to be particularly interested in much to know that there has been a substantial increase in the number of people who will tell you, I have a child who's autistic. And I go to a car wash in Margate, which is completely uh, powered by autistic adults. They work there. And it definitely gives you this sort of idea that autism isn't such a big deal that we have to worry about it all the time. And look, here are these people are working, but there's a whole different world out there in the field of study of autism. And with full disclosure, when I was still in college, I did a, I don't know if it was an internship. I can't remember now. It was over 50 years ago. I did a stint working at something called, at the time when I got there, it was called the Speech Rehabilitation Institute on Irving Place in Lower Manhattan. 
and then it became the Speech and Hearing Institute somewhere along the line when I was there. And my job literally was to assess and label children who came in whose parents were concerned with their behaviors and with some of the very overt symptoms of what was being called autism. Now, when I was working there, there was no spectrum. You either were or weren't. And there were several defining characteristics which allowed the doctors there. I remember Dr. Michael Webster was the head of the Institute. He would diagnose a child based on these behaviors. Uh, one of the behaviors was echolalia. They would just repeat whatever was said to them over and over and over again. Uh, another was hand flapping, fixation on you know, the wall or the cracks in the floor, or just a, a steady gaze at something which didn't seem that interesting to anybody else. So I had some exposure to children who were being diagnosed with autism at the time. And the only therapies that were being offered were language and speech therapies. There wasn't a whole lot known about the physiology and people would say, well, perhaps there's a genetic component and there would be maybe a brother and a sister from the same family. And then I saw this article on the free press by Jill Escher, who's an attorney and the mother of two autistic adults. And her children are not, you know, savants. Her children have profound autism, no speech, no language, and they would be totally non-functional at the, let's say, car wash that I frequent. So she wrote an article on how she first and foremost disagrees that vaccines are the cause of autism. She said when she had just become a mother for the first time and her friends, you know, because usually when you become a mother, you're in a crowd and a lot of the other women your age are also becoming mothers. And all of a sudden there were a lot of diagnoses of autism. It certainly felt that way. She wasn't sure if it was her imagination. But today she wrote this powerful and very shocking piece in the free press about how the rise in autism is very real. And it's not just a matter of a better or broader diagnosis, which is always what they say at first. But in fact, it's an actual skyrocketing of numbers and the way it's discussed and the research into its origins and all of the potential cures gets filtered through a very broken political system right now, which literally has caused the field to wither. Much like when I did the podcast about Alzheimer's and why after all this time are we still going down the same paths that didn't yield any good results? So it's kind of fascinating. Her article is about how she found out when she had her uh, son, who was two years old at the time, and there was something up. You know, he hadn't developed speech. He never played with toys. He had this compulsion to stare at cracks in the pavement. He flapped his hands. And the diagnosis was almost instant when she took him to the pediatrician and the neurologist. They said, he's got autism in spades. Autism. At the time, she didn't know anything about autism. She had a healthy pregnancy. She didn't have any risk factors that she knew of. And here she gets handed this devastating diagnosis with a son to basically say that he was going to have a lifetime of severe mental impairment. 
And it isn't just him. All around her, there was this rapid rising tide of diagnoses of autism. The local school districts were all complaining that they had this unbelievable number of kids being brought in for special ed who were diagnosed autistic. Serious autism, hard autism, not a sort of autism that you could miss. She was pregnant five years later, and the doctor tells her, you know, it's very unlikely that lightning is going to strike twice, and she probably would not have another child with autism uh, because they didn't think there was some familial genetic defect at the time. So she has a little girl, and by about 16 months, the signs were clear. She didn't point at things. She didn't play peekaboo. She didn't play with toys. And just like her brother, she didn't have any cognitive or language uh, skills to meet any of the milestones that everybody looks for with their young children. Autism, again, in spades, as the doctor pointed out. And now her kids are like 24 years old and 17 years old, and they're still nonverbal, and they're profoundly disabled by autism. What does that look like? Well, the other day, uh, her son found a tube of sunscreen in the car and rubbed it all over his shorts. Not exactly a good look, but they went into the boba place. That's what my grandson also loves and got a smoothie. And she's holding on to the back of his t-shirt, but he runs anyway, bolts out of the store, and it's getting really difficult to wrangle the 180-pound man back into the car. And so once she gets him into the car, he starts biting on an armrest. The sister, who's a little more adaptable than Johnny, you know, she'll chill at a Grateful Dead tribute concert, but like her brother, she can't talk. She doesn't read or write. She can't grasp even the most basic of abstract concepts, like what's a family or this week or it's a birthday. Young girls her age are putting makeup on and applying to college, and she doesn't know how to brush her teeth or put on her own socks. Her learning is stuck like Groundhog Day, only it's stuck at a toddler level. Now, nobody can tell the mom, Jill Escher, what possibly could have caused these extreme mental disabilities in their children, nor can they in the vast majority of autism cases. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. It's not your imagination. The field is stagnating in the wake of wave after wave of unsuccessful attempts to understand the origins of autism or to alter its trajectory. So now we have the rise of neurodiversity identity. This is a whole movement where autism got reinvented as some kind of natural difference to be celebrated and not investigated and not prevented and not even treated. And they like spread fairy dust of complacency over the whole world of autism. So the rates continue to climb. Now it's one in 36 or nearly 3% of all eight-year-olds by the latest count from the CDC 
in the world. And they've waved like the white flag of surrender. People normalize autism now rather than treat it as a national emergency, which by the way, it most certainly is. And I know, you know, there are examples everywhere. You look at these autism conferences like the INSAR, which is the International Society for Autism Research. That used to focus on serious-minded biological research. And now it's kind of drifted into some kind of celebration of neurodiversity. It's reality distortion is what it is. And it's going on with gender. It's going on with all kinds of things that really in the past weren't accepted or probable in your family. So in this reality distortion field, Lee Wachtel, who's a doctor, the medical director of the Neurobehavioral Unit at Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, which by the way, treats hundreds of autism patients, said to a group of parents and autistic patients that it's all okay and you make some minor adjustments and don't worry. Well, that's simply not going to make sense to the parents of these autistic children who grow up to be autistic adults. And if you're not going to look for the cause and your, your mission is no longer to find risk factors, then what are you going to look at? She went to a meeting of environmental epidemiologists in 2019. First and foremost, did any of you even know that such a thing existed? environmental epidemiologists, not until COVID, right? And all they had were the same old tired concepts. Oh, you know, it's air pollution, but it's not a cause. And mothers don't eat right. Uh, Maternal nutrition, nope, not a cause. They ran out of ideas. But there are still a lot of things that should be looked at. One of the things that you have to accept is that it's not a superpower. Even if people like Elon Musk and sensitive artists like the singer Sia and even elite athletes like Tony Snell are on the spectrum, they're very high functioning. You know, most of the parents of autistic children would call that a gift if they had a kid who had exceptional skills. Or, you know, that, that movie, The Good Doctor, which is about some genius surgeon who has to, you know, uh, operate with autism. But you don't see any news coverage of adults like, and I'll just use the initial, like P, who have to be helmeted to prevent brain injury from constant self-harm, or even one of uh, her friend's kids, Z, who bounces around a restaurant stealing food from other diners' plates, or teenagers like T, who's broken every single window in his house using his head. Now, we need some clarity about all the autism subtypes. There was a Lancet Commission paper that introduced the term profound autism to refer to those with IQs under 50 or who are nonverbal or or minimally verbal, meaning those most severely impacted like Jill Escher's two kids. And that's a good start. Those people obviously need attention to their specific and intensive needs. The CDC recently reported that profound autism represents about 27% of all U.S. childhood autism. So on an absolute level, that's half a percent of all U.S. children. And that hardly means that the other 73% are mildly affected. It's a great middle range of autism. There are those with IQs in the 50s 
or in the 60s and even in the 70s range who have some language and still have some typically severe disabilities. Like, for instance, take Kay, who loves showing pictures of his girlfriend and she's a video game character with flaming red hair. Or R, who has memorized every Disney song ever written and still believes in Santa Claus at age 31. These are different ranges, but most disability policies are based on this fantastical conceptualization of ability and very cruel consequences are coming down the line for the most vulnerable ones. The few jobs that are within the grasp of some adults who are disabled by autism, they're under threat of complete elimination. There's a push to eliminate sub-minimum wage job programs, which offer the only way to employment for the severely cognitively disabled, which are people like the author of the article's kids. And they're gonna lose their only chance at a structured, supported, productive work, and they'll be pushed even further to the margins of society. And we haven't even started talking about long-term housing. You know, state Medicaid programs are by far the largest source of funds for long-term care for developmentally disabled adults. And those kinds of programs promote inclusion for those who can live in ordinary community homes, which is great when it works, but it's kind of unrealistic to expect independence or self-determination like the kids that are being talked about in this article who are now adults. And so they punish any new programs that are needed to serve those who require total around-the-clock care. So abandonment under the guise of progressive empathy. We see that with the homeless. We see that with seniors. And to be fair, I mean, part of me gets it, right? I certainly celebrate all the precious people who are in the autism community, we want them all to be included and loved and supported. And we support all kinds of nonprofits and we support countless people with autism. You know, uh, this woman wrote the article, she, she does events for them. Um, anybody on the autism spectrum, you can have pool parties and concerts and dances and hikes and picnics and social groups and you know ice skating, whatever. And of course, there's also all these committees and conferences at Stanford that are aimed at helping achieve the best quality of life for autistic adults. Who doesn't want the best for people with autism? We all do. But this unwavering desire for social good has in many ways lapsed into sugarcoating and trivializing the serious mental disabilities and the galactic challenges that are wrought by the dramatic growth. We're stuck in the post-truth era and we're no longer devoted to the question of what causes autism. That's been eliminated from the missions and that's pretty scary. You know, all the hypotheses that used to exist have been silenced and long-term housing is something that's gonna have to be addressed because the parents of autistic kids are not gonna live forever. So as long as we're riding the identitarian train of autism, we're ignoring the adult services catastrophe that probably awaits this population. Not probably, definitely awaits them. As the parents of autistic 
adults pass away, we lose everything that makes life possible for a person who's disabled by profound autism. You lose the housing provider. You lose the 24-7 supervisor. You lose the guardian and the program manager and the trustee, the financial manager, the benefits manager, the advocate, the cook, the driver, the hygienist, the housekeeper, the launderer, the medical supervisor, the recreation provider, the interpreter, the iPad fixer, the handyman or the protector from abuse and neglect, and of course, the main source of love and nurturing. It's the equivalent of more than a dozen jobs, if not more, plus jobs money can't pay for. In dollars, the value is astonishing. Paying staff, who by the way, are increasingly hard to find, to fill the necessary care and supervision roles costs anywhere from $50,000 to $1 million per year, such as the example where even $440,000 per year for one young man was insufficient. Now multiply that by the growing caseloads and the specter of aging parents, and you can see this is like a Mount Everest of social services crises, one that's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and honestly, likely much more than that. The colossal financial toll hardly means that we get to turn away from the problem. To the contrary, it's never been more important to have a clear-eyed view of autism's readily observable realities and to talk about this in a serious, frank way. Talk about the future, especially about the unprecedented demand for long-term care. Siblings might help, yeah, but inexperience really most and reasonably refused to serve as primary caregivers. It was like enough growing up and having to look out for your brother or sister. So we need to come up with some innovative solutions. We can't make progress, though, if we continue to normalize patients with autism. And that's the dilemma, really, for many of these parents, is the researchers have scored genes and environment, and for the most part, still don't get it. Intensive studies with large cohorts have seen that about 14% of the cases of autism can actually be attributed to rare genetic defects. And none of these genetic cases are autism per se. Often they are syndromes where autism may be a feature, as with fragile X or Phelan McDermott syndrome. What fuels the genetics narrative is not wild success in gene finding, but rather repeated studies showing that autism is highly heritable, not down the ancestral line, mind you, but heritable among a horizontal generation based mainly on twin studies and a very high recurrence risk among siblings, as in the case of the author of that article. The failure to understand the forces behind this recurrence in autism families has been termed the missing heritability of autism which has led to speculation that perhaps the bulk of autism could be explained by normally harmless common genetic variants somehow acting together to influence risk. But all the early studies probing this hypothesis have come up with little to support that idea. What about the environment? Studies have found few external factors that notably raise autism risk, but there are some. 
such as premature birth or the maternal use of certain drugs and medications, maternal infection, and neonatal hypoxia. Advanced age of the father and to some degree the mother is associated with increased risk, but this cannot explain more than a small fraction of cases. There is weak evidence only for so-called non-heritable factors raising risk for autism. So with little to show after decades of research, the mood is one of eh, shrug your shoulders and resignation. Autism Speaks, which was once a de an entity fervently devoted to the research, is shrugging its shoulders. CDC data also showed that over just 12 years from 2008 to 2020, autism increased across all categories of intellectual functioning. For cases with intellectual disability, that means having an IQ under 70, the prevalence more than doubled. School districts around the country have long sounded the alarm about the increasing cases of school kids with autism in need of special ed services. These aren't just quirky kids, but kids who could not succeed in mainstream education. Even the LA Unified School District saw a declining overall enrollment after COVID, but its special education autism numbers surged sixfold from 2,784 in 2001 to 17,217 in 2021. Walter Zahardney, who's a PhD associate professor of pediatrics at Rutgers, and I think he's the director of the New Jersey Autism Study, studied many cohorts over more than two decades, summed it up this way. Autism prevalence has increased significantly and broadly across every group, type, and category across U.S. regions since 2000. The surge in autism cannot be explained by broadening of criteria or diagnostic substitution or other rationalizations reflecting the hypothesis of better awareness. So we don't know. We have no idea. Perhaps the biggest debate in autism now is around the dramatically increasing rates. Is it real or just an artifact of relabeling? Just as we've seen the increase in cases of gender dysphoria and transgenderism, and we're beginning to question, has this reality or is this a trend, a social trend? Well, they ask the same question sometimes about autism. But look, even if you have catastrophe fatigue, and I think most of us do, you have a choice not to believe that neurodevelopmental abnormality is afflicting an ever-increasing portion of our kids you might want to just back away. But the empirical evidence for truly soaring autism rates, which is based on objective measures, is overwhelming. The sweeping upward curves over the past 20 to 30 years can be seen in almost all sectors. The state developmental disability systems, schools, medical providers, Medicaid, social security systems, even when the definition of autism was held constant, and there's growth like that in Canada, in England, in Northern Ireland, and in other countries. Now, the state of California is well known for keeping the best autism data in the nation because it has a decades-old mandate to find and serve residents with developmental disabilities, and the numbers are conscience-shocking and not remotely subtle. We've seen the autism caseload in the Department of Developmental Services, which serves only substantially disabling autism 
that meets the definition of developmental disability and not the full spectrum soared from about 3,200 in 1989 to more than 160,000 in 2022. That's a 50-fold increase over 33 years. So science's tragic inability to find causal roots and its growing discrediting and shrugging of shoulders gives us little opportunity to flatten autism's alarming upward curve or for prospective parents to consider risks and preventative measures, all while diminishing the likelihood of finding meaningful treatments. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.